listen Don't let that liquor take your head When you go up on a mountain Welcome back to Eddie Lines. It's late February in Montana. I can feel the stirring energy of spring in the air. I'm excited for rain and mud and green. I'm excited to hug my friends at the river house and see the muddy, churning river again as we lower the rafts down the ramp. That scene doesn't get old. This episode is longer than usual, a good one for a long drive. I always look for things to cut out of an episode. I had a hard time doing that with this one. Today's show is a long, deep, and winding conversation with Shannon Walton and Hefe Aronson. Shannon started guiding on the main and middle fork of the salmon for Echo River trips in 1997. She moved to Driggs where she became the second ever female cat skiing guide at Grand Targhee in 1999. She rounded out her guiding year, taking clients from all over the world backpacking in the Tetons and Yellowstone National Park. Shannon also taught Whitewater Guide School in Jackson. She's recognized as a leader in the outdoor industry, having mentored young women in their career paths and consulted for numerous businesses. She's the executive director of the Redside Foundation. Hefe Aronson rose dories in the Grand Canyon, in rafts in Alaska, Idaho, and other far-flung rivers. He loves nature at her wildest, when she is most beautiful. His evocative descriptions of untamed places and constant tension and nearness of death has gripped travelers and readers alike for the duration of Hefe's 40 years in river guiding and storytelling. Hefe has published several stories on Amazon, each a chapter of Onward's Wayward Boatman, a riveting collection of adventure narratives and personal stories. You may subscribe to his blog, I Can't Make This Shit Up, on his website at river-god.com. Shannon's known Hefe for a long time, so I mostly just listen to these old friends catch up. Shannon, Hefe, welcome to Eddie Lines. Um, so, Hefe, we haven't seen each other for, gosh, almost 20 years. I know. It, uh, I can't even think of where, where the last place we, we would have seen each other. I, I'm sure it was on a river or near a river somewhere. When, um, when did you guys move to Australia? Um, well, we took care of my dad who had had a stroke uh, pretty much on the weekend that Carrie moved out to Flagstaff to live with me. And uh, we took care of him at our place in Flagstaff for a couple of years until he passed away in 98. And then we sold basically my, you know, Carrie, my wife, she uh, missed her folks who were still alive back here in Australia and uh, she missed Australia, her, her homeland. So we kind of did a couple of scouting missions in 99 and then uh, we sold everything we owned and basically whatever we, you know, like our camping gear and all the other stuff we still had, our hiking gear and, you know, day-to-day stuff, we packed in a big container and shipped it over. And then we came out here and drove around and looked for a place and found where we live now, basically uh, up in the mountains near the Snowy River in sort of northeastern Victoria, southeastern Australia, but northeastern Victoria, the very corner, bottom right-hand corner of Australia. So we've been here really since we bought the place, January 2000, but we kept going back and forth after I built the shed to live in. um, We had a big, huge fire, two and a half million acre forest fire came right through our place. And um, it was pretty traumatic, but it also left the place looked like a Holocaust for years. Wow. So I started, that's when I started working for Echo. Mm. Um, so I'd come back half the year and build 
you know, on our place here. And then half the year I'd go back and uh, work for Echo. And then um, then I came, went back to the Grand Canyon when they invited me back, Regan invited me back. I think it would have been, oh gosh, 05-ish. So, you know, as time went on, we spent a little less time every year in the, in uh, the States, basically just enough for my season in the Canyon and on the Middle Fork in Idaho. And then we'd spend the whole rest of the time here finishing the house and the property. Pretty epic. That's amazing. That's amazing. And now we, uh, I grew up in Wisconsin, but you grew up in Illinois, right? Yeah, in Chicago, um, Jewish ghetto in northwestern Chicago, Rogers Park, and uh, yeah, it was a uh, big city surrounded by cement and man-made things, and I was a, not a very happy kid growing up in the 60s and didn't really see much much to do that I really wanted to be or do, um, so I acted out a bit and was not, I, I, I regret what I did to my teachers, <laughs> but uh in the end of that little uh, segment of my life, um, I remember, uh, you know, sitting in the breakfast nook and I was stoned off my gourd as usual. And my mom threw a Reader's Digest uh, at me and said, read that article. It was about Outward Bound. And so, you know, she said, what do you think? And I said, well, it sounds really cool, you know, but, you know, and she said, well, you have two choices, uh, military school or Outward Bound. So. I thank my mother for my outdoor career because uh, once I went to Outward Bound, it was the last course they ever had in Yosemite in 1970 and uh, changed my, my world, changed my life. And um, the rest is history. That's great. I also, I did not like growing up in the Midwest. I remember the teachers in grade school, we would go, we would go to the Pabst factory for, for field trips, like three years in a row. And I was so afraid of what life was going to be like as an adult. I was so happy to go west. I understand yeah. where you're coming from. Yeah. <laughs> and when did you start guiding? Um, well, I started guiding sort of off and on, you know, individually right off the bat, really, when I um, hitchhiked around the country and then I uh, moved to the Tetons. And mm -hmm. I lived in a, first I lived in a in a teepee on the banks of the Snake River for a couple of years in the Tetons. And, uh, and then I moved into a school bus, converted school bus. And, uh, you know, I was guiding then uh, a little bit for Knowles and I was guiding just on my own. And, but I was basically cutting my teeth, you know, just doing a lot of mountaineering and ice climbing and rock climbing and just, you know, feeling my oats, so to speak. And then I decided I didn't really want to wash dishes for the rest of my life <laughs> to make a living and buy all my climbing gear. So uh, I became a, I heard about a paramedic school that was, had openings, which was unheard of in those days, usually had a years long waiting list in LA. And so I went to Queen of Angels paramedic school in LA that year. And, um, and then became a paramedic in LA in 74, 75, and uh, decided that that really wasn't uh, my what meant for me. And so uh, really when I started Mount uh, River Guiding rather, was the spring of 76. Uh, a friend of mine had done a, an Art of Whitewater school in the fall of 75. And when they were on the Rogue, they um, bumped up with a uh, an, an et cetera trip, environmental traveling companions, and they were doing a disabled 
and kids at risk trip with a bunch of volunteer guides. And uh, he fell in love with that. And he's, he just told me, you know, I'm going to uh, learn how to guide and learn how to kayak. And I'm going to go up to the Stanislaus River in the Sierra foothills uh, in April. And I said, count me in, buddy. So that's that was the beginning of my um, actual river guiding career was the spring of 1976 in the Sierras. On the stand. You're so lucky that you got to spend time there. Oh my God, it was so magic. I mean, that's our mother river. And, you know, we loved it so much. And I guess I, I was a coward really, because when they, you know, they were start, they've already had already started um, raising the New Maloney's Dam hmm. uh, when I was guiding. And I just didn't have the guts to stick around and fight the fight, you know. I mean, I, I worked a little bit with Friends of the River and stuff, Mark Dubois and, and um, those folks, but um, I just couldn't cope with it. So um, I started guiding in Utah on the, on the Colorado and Cataract. What was it that you didn't like about what was going on with fighting for the stand? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic, really, because, uh, you know, now, I mean, my, I've spent my whole life battling bureaucrats and politicians and uh, and basically for the things I believed in. But in, in those days, I just, I just didn't want to fight. I wanted to enjoy the river. I wanted to float. I wanted to guide. I wanted to paddle, you know, and I, I just couldn't cope with all the paperwork and the going to the meetings and stuff I do. I've been doing ever since, really. I guess maybe I learned my lesson on that one. Um, but I just, I just couldn't do it. So um, I just went and found another river and went there instead and left the, you know, everybody else to fight for it. Sadly, they, they lost. Yeah, they did. Did you keep in touch with those folks? Oh, yeah. No, I've still got a, a bunch of friends from et cetera uh, that I keep in touch with and um, some friends from Friends of the River. And of course, Mark Dubois and I, you know, we're in contact from time to time and um, he's moved on to other things as well. And, um, you know, of course, we're, I'm in a, my late 60s. He, he's probably in his early 70s now. So <laughs> age yeah. is caught up, really. Yeah. You know, I, and, you know, the old Arta crowd, I mean, um, they have a, they called it the Seder, really, but it was, it was just an annual gathering. And they've been doing it ever since the mid 70s, really. And that crowd has, has been tight really tight friends ever since then it's it's really a cool community it is a cool community the art art it's funny the art community and the etc community is where i found the love of guiding as well on the on the south really? fork. yeah yeah oh, oh on the south fork of the american oh that's cool yep that's really i love it i love that you have that too did that's you cool. did you work for arda I, did, I didn't. I worked for Whitewater Connection, but I lived yep. in a house across the street from Camp Lotus and all the Arta guys ah. party at our house. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they're, they're all, a lot of them are still living in Coloma and the Bay Area and uh, they, every, uh, Truckee, and, you know, yep. different places like that. Yep. We meet up every year still at Camp Lotus. That's so cool. I love that. We just uh, we just gave a, a scholarship to Chris Madden through the, from the Redside Foundation. Oh, cool! Right, I love that. I just love that the the what's my favorite thing about the guiding community? The multi generations that support each other and understand the passion of it all. 
And so uh, what was the scholarship for to do? Uh, he's going to uh, a, a, like an accelerated nursing program in the Bay Area. Wow. Awesome. Wow, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, he's yeah, super- our uh, the trade off in our in our career, our chosen career in life is that it doesn't really um, provide the kind of um, finances and savings that you need to <laughs> in the end when you re- finally retire or your back gives out or whatever. Yeah, it's really it's true. It's true. We talk a lot about the transition out of guiding and how do you know, you know how do you know when it's time? And the, you know, I, I was on a Grand Canyon trip last year. It was a, I was, it was a charter trip. And one of the motor guys, he's, you know, mid twenties and love and life. And he's like, I'm going to do this forever. And I remember thinking <laughs> that too. And, you know, I, I, I look at, I look at all the changes I've seen. I can't imagine the changes that you've seen, but 40, how many years guiding? Well, yeah, officially I'm calling it 44. I mean, I'm in my my 45th season and I just sold my Swiftwater Rescue um, business to another Australian lad here in Australia. But I mean, I don't, I'm not counting that as guiding per se. So 44 years. Yeah, I've seen a lot of changes. I mean, I was there, we were, I mean, essentially we were, they were the pioneer river runners, you know, like Lou Elliott and, um, George went and the folks that, you know, just basically started the whole thing and got all the gear together from um, Korean War and World War II surplus rafts and all that stuff and put, you know, got the rivers going and the businesses going and then, you know, they needed guides. And so it was sort of essentially the beginning, the very first professional river guides that ever were really um, my generation. So, you know, early to mid seventies. Um, so yeah, now yeah, it was really cool to be part of that. And now, I mean, now it's a super profession, professional, um, you know, undertaking and, you know, there's people that, you know, I think still really there's people that, um, it's just a summer job sort of thing. That's really fun and exciting and, um, you know, a bit of an ego boost too, but I suppose, but, um, but for some of us, like the f- guy that you were just talking about and, and us, I think, um, it wasn't just a career. I mean, like my friend, Suzanne Jordan, who was one of my mentors, mm. um, you know, back in the seventies, it was just the very beginning of, uh, of the feminism movement and this and that. And so, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, Boatman is really a, um, a um, you know, a term that's sexist and we need to change that. And they were talking about, you know, uh, boat mun m u n and uh, river guide and this and that and Susie you know we were you know we were all in we were just kind of wondering what to do and Susie walks in with her Alabama accent and she goes Debbie she goes I don't know about all this river guide stuff she says river guide is what I do but a boatman is who I, I am <laughs> <laughs> so you know um, I still go by boatman and you know but I, I mean I'm respectful of folks that want to be called a river guide but. I mean, for some people, that's who they are, I guess is my point. And, uh, you know, there's no turning back once once you're in that mode. I agree. I still have that and boatman seeing the boatman dance. It still goes through my head at every put in during every trip. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Definitely. Yep. No, I mean, we're lucky. We're a lucky crowd, really. And, um, 
you know, you do it as long as you can. And eventually I suppose something happens, you get married or you, your back, you hurt your back or, you know, your wrist or your shoulder, or there's a million other things you can hurt because it's a really tough job physically. Yeah. Um, or you just slow down like I did. I mean, I, in the end, I mean, I never wanted to quit. I wanted to be guiding until I died really. But um, at some point, I felt like I had to respect my pards and, um, you know, not hold them back and make them carry my load, I guess, so to speak. And I couldn't keep up as much and, you know, get tired easier. And I just, I just had to take, spend more time on my boat. And I was, I just thought, you know, uh, time to quit, move on. Good to respect your needs and yourself and your crew. Yeah. yeah. And the others. And yeah, I mean, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole life, really. So what quitting um, guiding? Still, oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I still, I mean, if my body could handle it, I'd be still doing it. But at some point that's not happening. <laughs> hey, you were, so you were just talking about in the seventies and female guides, female boatmen. What have you seen in your time with the evolution of women guiding? Oh, well, you know, I could, I could pull out of my hat at least a dozen, you know, names of female guides who, you know, I knew personally who came to Arda and or later Oars um, because they were not accepted at all in the companies they were working for. And they, that I'll just leave that unnamed, them unnamed, but there was a lot of misogyny going on. And look, you know, it happens it still happens really, you know, you go to the um, firefighters or police or, um, you know, um, forest rangers, you name it. If, if it's outside and, and kind of burly, you know, um, it's, a, it's, it's, right it's, there's a, another level of, um, you know, yeah, basically um, being is... male chauvinist and that, and so in, the, in these kinds of careers. Yeah, and that happened like... for, with our career for sure. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of women that would, I mean, I recorder, spent a lot of time but with women who were crying and very upset because, you know, they found what they were meant to be just like yeah. I did, you know, and they, they were good at it, uh, but they just weren't accepted. And, you know, I mean, I knew women, I a, a woman down on the food of Fu who um, the owner of this company said, basically, women can't row class five. And she'd already been rowing class five all over the world and probably nailing it better than some of the guys. And uh, he actually uh, said that, okay, you, if you run these, I can't remember how many, it was three or four or five rivers. You run these class five rivers all over the world. And he named a bunch of insane class five rivers and you don't flip, you come back to me and I'll give you a job. Well, she took a year and she did it. And she came back and he still wouldn't give her a job. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, <clears throat> it's it's been, it's been a long road to hoe in a lot of for women in a lot of um, careers, but this one I think was was pretty tough. So, you know, Arda and Oars, you know, were some of the original companies that really accepted women and mentored women. And you know, in those days, I remember watching the women guides and thinking, wow, they are so good. You know, they they use, they don't have the strength. They're not, you know, huge, like Bruce Helene, big fella, you know, but they could make the moves because they were using the finesse and reading the water better. So they taught me a lot about that. Um, 
you know, and uh, I improved, I think, uh, immensely because of that. And, you know, over the years, I think it's, it's opened up a lot more uh, to where you'll find women guides, you know, running motor rigs in the Grand Canyon now. And, uh, you know, I remember the first female guide on the Middle Fork rowing, uh, um, sweet, you know, guiding a sweep rig. Yeah. And uh, she was so excited about it. And, you know, she was good, really good. So, yeah, it's changed a lot. And there's still, you know, now there's a lot of change. You know, there's a lot of things uh, surrounding how, what people say and how men speak to women and to each other and sort of the adolescent jokes and stuff that we all do. And I think, I, I know women do it too, but um, so I think that's, it's gotten to the, the point where women are accepted now and now they've got to help change the culture in terms of how, uh, how everybody treats each other, I suppose you could say. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're, I think you're right. How, how did it work for you with your experience, Ben, with watching how women interact with guests as opposed to the male guides? Did it change the dynamic of the trips? Yeah, well, you know, um, it was pretty obvious in the early days, you know, like when there was an all-male crew, we'd get um, queried by some of the clients, you know, like, where's the women? Where's the women? And um, so as that changed over the years and there were more female guides, uh, you know, they taught us a lot of the softer skills, you know. Um, Susie, Suzanne Jordan, especially taught me a lot about soft skills. I mean, there was nobody better than her on any level. Um, whether it was rowing a boat or a snout for crying out loud um, or class five on the B.O.B.O. with, you know, with me and Sobek years and years ago in the early 80s. Uh, you know, she was that good, but she also could sense what, when things were going south with either with, with clients or there was a couple's problem or a guide problem, you know, maybe some guys were button heads or whatever. And she handled it usually with aplomb. I mean, she, she'd knock a few heads together. <laughs> she didn't shy away from that once in a while. But um, yeah, she really taught me a lot about how to cope and deal with, um, you know, that sort of soft skill stuff. She sounds like a pretty cool lady. She was. She passed away last year, and um, I'll miss her forever. And I think she was a legend that um, she didn't really... Uh, she didn't really trumpet her own self very much. And, you know, I think we'll miss her a lot. She was um, one of the pioneers for sure. Speaking of that, you know, that's one of the, I think in the guiding world and in the outdoor athlete world, we, we lose people too soon sometimes. And that can take a real toll on, on an individual and a, and a crew. Have you, have you, do you have, do you have anything you want to say about that? Yeah, well, look, you know, I mean, I experienced myself, you know, I got cancer, um, testicular cancer that metastasized all over the place um, mm -hmm. when I was 26. And so I had to take a hiatus there for a while. And then, you know, fortunately, you know, luck of the gods, really, I came back and I was able to guide again. And then I had Guillaume Beret, which they call French polio in uh, 89 and once again I had to take a, a long hiatus and you know I've hurt my back I've done this and that and I know others who have as well and a lot of times we uh, 
work through the pain. A lot of times it's just too much. You got to find another career and that's super tough. Um, you know, I got lucky. I got to go back every time until I was ready to retire, but not everybody gets that second and third and fourth and fifth chance, you know? So, you know, it's good that you guys started the Red Side Foundation and the Whale Foundation down in the Grand Canyon because, uh, well, I'm telling you, it's tough. And when it's more than just a career, when it's your life, when it's who you are, uh, yeah. leaving it behind is it's real tough. And then, you know, I mean, nobody has to tell you, you know, we're not, it's not like we're paid um, a gazillion dollars for what we do, you know, that we trade off doing what we love and having a rich life um, versus, you know, getting rich in dollars. And um, I'm trying to remember the, the gal in the Grand Canyon, the famous motorboat woman that uh, her quote was, uh, damn this river, you know, if it wasn't for this river, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> And it was like perfect, really. <laughs> so, you know, again, we're uh, we're lucky to do what we do, but we, you know, the way I played it was, you know, I, I figured, well, first I started out as a volunteer and I really started guiding for art because I had to feed myself, you know, we could only eat so much leftover um, food and put salmonella in it, you know, off the, all the river trips. So, um, you know, I started slowly but surely guiding commercially for, because of that. But, you know, at some point I realized, I mean, we made um, $26.50 a day. Uh, and the Arta guides struck uh, Lou Elliott and Arta because they wanted to get a $5 a day raise to make $32.50 a day <laughs> or $31.50. And that uh, he basically fired them all and they all had to go up and run in Idaho and on the road and stuff instead, which was good for them anyway. But um, we didn't we never made a whole lot of money. Right. And um, even, you know, even today, you know, we got to supplement it with tips. They don't do that in Australia. They pay a little better here. Um, you know, like a lot of guides uh, that were working for me with Swiftwater Rescue. And when I go out and work you know, an outdoor education um, school as a guide or whatever. I'm, I'm often paid um, 400 bucks, 450 a day, but um, in the States, but they don't tip here. And in the States, you know, I think people are pretty happy to make two bills a day, but that's usually partly because they're getting tipped as well. And so, you know, to me, it was enough to pay the bills, but you're never going to save a retirement fund out of that, you know? Right. So um, I always felt like it was good to have an investment of some sort or something, some other way to, you know, save your money so that you had something left over to take care of you and your family when and, you know, when the time came to that you had to retire. It's hard too when you work seasonally, you know, especially if, especially if you're doing multi-day river trips to uh you, you don't you don't you don't you don't even really know how much money you have in the bank right because you 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 live this really rich life out on the river or in the mountains or and you get done with your season and you realize you've got all this money and you feel really flush but it's got last it's hard to manage yeah yeah well look you know i know i think we both know a lot of people that guide in the summer and either ski patrol or you know teach in the winter um, you know, they have sort of seasonal jobs or they go overseas or go to the Southern Hemisphere and uh, guide rivers there. Um, but really, it's never going to really, you know, make make you a mint uh, for sure. And I mean, I 
when I finished a season back in the seventies, you know, I'd end up with, you know, two or three grand in the bank. And I felt really rich. I, that would get me through the winter traveling through Mexico and South America and Canada and you name it. That's great. I remember many, many Wall Street guys on the Middle Fork, you know, day four. Huh. I could have done this. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. just feeling even more lucky for being there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, we're we're pretty lucky, but we do you do have to think. I mean, in my 30s, I thought, you know, I better find something. And then um, Winnie's Natural Foods came up for sale, and oh, yeah. I had terrible credit from what I from my debts during the my medical emergency when I had cancer in my 20s. So I didn't have any way to borrow money, but they were going to carry the loan. So I mean, that, that really started my financial security. Um, at that moment, was when they they come covered the loan themselves. And uh, then I bought their building, downtown Flagstaff, and kind of went from there. And was, the, was there any interest in the health food store because of your own health journey? Yeah, you know, it's funny because uh, <laughs> probably um, um, breaking the dogma here, but, um, you know, when I did my first chemo treatment, um, that was back in the old days when uh, it was like medieval torture. It was absolutely horrendous. They would bring you to the brink of death. And then hopefully they recognized that's where you were and they'd slow things down until you kind of caught your breath. And then they'd bring it back to the brink of death over and over and over. And it was really tough kind of watching that drip go into your bloodstream and thinking, you know, all I got to do to feel better is pull that tube out. Mm. Um, so, but if you do that, then, you know, the end result is you die. So Anyway, long story short is I read every book there was on Telegraph Avenue in hippie heaven in Berkeley on alternative medicine and uh, naturopathy and homeopathy and stuff like that um, to try to find a different way to do it um, that was more natural. And uh, it was funny because I remember putting my last book back on the bookshelf and walking out and shaking my head and going, you know, if I read enough books... I'd find one book that said every single thing in the universe caused cancer. And I'd find this another book that said the very same things cured cancer. So I give up. I uh, contacted a lady and uh, she said, oh, she was very anti-Western medicine. And, you know, we had a discussion about that. And then I finally said, well, so if I broke my leg, would you send me to some, you know, like a doctor to mend the break or would you say I, I should do yoga and take herbs and she said oh yeah take herbs and acupuncture and stuff and I thought no that's kind of crazy so I hung up and I went back to chemo and it's it ended up saving my life um, yeah. but I had a little feel for how marketing and people can take the dogma a little bit too far and stuff so when I bought the natural food store I, I was after just healthy food I wasn't up you know into the you know cure, uh, cure for everything on earth so it was funny because um, people would walk into my store and, you know, I'd have something on my shelf that had sat there unsold for years. And then all of a sudden it would be flying off the shelves. I couldn't keep it stocked. And then after a few months, it would go back to sitting on the shelf and nobody would ever buy it again. And I finally figured out that they would have, you know, some infomercial. I remember somebody coming in and asking for this you know, herbal treatment. And I, and I said, did you just see an infomercial that this stuff, I don't know, 
cures toenail fungus or something? And she said, well, yeah, how did you know? <laughs> so I said, don't worry, it doesn't work, but I'll sell it to you if you want, but it doesn't work. So, you know, so it was more really about healthful foods and healthful living and doing the best you can because, hey, lightning strikes, doesn't it? Sure does. Sure does. And you know it more than just about anybody I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm on my third bout now. I got leukemia, but, um, you know, like I'm hanging in there and miraculously enough, they found some drug that keeps it at bay. So, you know, I'll probably get hit by a truck before I actually die of this. So <laughs> well, that's, that's one way to look at it. Have faith. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I keep telling people you got to die of something, you know, I'm 68 right. and I, I keep thinking, really? You're 68? No, you're, you're, you're still 20 something, aren't you? No. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> like you feel the same inside and then you look in the mirror and go, whoa, whoa, all right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I walk down the street when I go back to flag, I walk down the street and I go, wow, that's an older version of, you know, fill in the blank, Larry Stevens, Nancy Nelson. And, and I think, oh, wait, it is. Larry it Stevens. is. <laughs> <laughs> Right? <laughs> and oh wait look in the mirror Jeff look what you look like it's pretty funny really. I mean it, it's funny and it's not funny at the same time <laughs> yeah it's I think I think it's a really remarkable thing right because your brain doesn't really change so your memories are the same but your body yeah changes. yeah yeah no really I mean uh, I, I can't tell you how many people I know you know that go well you know I'm just a 22 year old uh, living in a 70 year old body you know I mean you know, you wake up and you got aches and pains and you have no idea where they came from or, you know, you're feeling kind of crappy or slow or lethargic or whatever. But I mean, really, you're the same person you ever were and ever will be deep down. Deep down. Yep. It's pretty, it's, it's a pretty fascinating thing about life. And it's great yeah. to keep people in your life for your whole life. You know, I was thinking today about all the bridges that I haven't burned and how happy I am for that because everyone comes around it's really yeah. life is really beautiful yeah no it, it is and you know like uh, you know like people say oh i have no regrets and you know i do have a few regrets and um i wish i could take back a few things i've done and said and over my lifetime but you know uh, i've got to give that to others as well and so there's a lot of forgiveness that you got to give as well as get back and um, you kind of learn that over time that's so true I had a conversation today um, with some folks who are making a film about mental health in the outdoor professional guiding world professional athlete world and we were talking about empathy and how you know culturally in the U.S. we, we talk about empathy as this thing that like oh yeah we, should, we all need more empathy but really empathy is the idea that you take on another person's feelings and maybe that's not so healthy and maybe really what's needed is more compassion but compassion starts with that idea of having self-compassion and being friendly with yourself so you know even though you we all have you know we all have regrets and things we wish we wouldn't have done or said but being friendly towards yourself for for that and and knowing that in that moment you were doing the best you could and being able to offer that to others is really Whew. heavy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's big and it's not as easy as it sounds. I mean, I keep my little mantras. We're all dragging our bag of rocks around with us. And, you know, we got to just um, remember that everybody else is doing that too. So, you know, when I got a little hot, you know, in the Grand Canyon and it was, 
you know, 125 degrees outside and everybody's a little dehydrated, a little grumpy, and a little, you know, apt to, you know, not be super nice and uh, want to get it over with and get cool. And, you know, I, it took me a long time, but by the end I was, I'd have to look at everybody else and go, you know what, they're in the same boat. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I got to give them that space. And so, you know, hey, have some Gatorade, bud, let's go, you know, yeah. let's have a Anyway, yeah, it's not easy all the time. That's, that's part of the challenge of life. <laughs> it is. This episode is supported by Vanguard Inflatables. Vanguard is a Salt Lake-based raft manufacturer. The company was founded in 1964. I've used a ton of Vanguard Inflatable kayaks in the Middle Fork of the Salmon. In the 30-some trips down the Middle Fork with these kayaks, I've not seen a single new patch. They're also deep enough and with large enough side tubes to keep all but the worst paddling clients from flipping. Besides one- and two-person duckies, Vanguard makes quality self-bailing rafts, non-self-bailing rafts, and paddle boards. Check them out at vanguardinflatables.com. to the Grand Canyon for a second um, because I was thinking about that trip with Ben and Karen and your your boat your Sam McGee you it was a really unusual dory will you tell me a little bit about it <laughs> yeah well most of the boats that you see in the Grand Canyon are big boats big style and uh, that was Martin and Jerry Briggs uh, designing um, kind of off the cuff a boat that would run white water and kind of like a based on a, a, uh, the original drift boats and then deck them over so they didn't sink every time you flipped over, which was a lot, um, uh, or hold them or whatever. Um, but there was also another design called a Lavro. And really, I mean, we didn't know that back in, when I was working uh, rubber all the time for Azra. I mean, we passed the dories all the time and we were, you know, we thought, oh, what a beautiful boat and everything. And I mean, it was kind of hilarious really because we got to know the system really well. We'd, we'd float by them and you'd notice that all the boats had their bows pointing down out towards the river, then their sterns toward the bank, except maybe one or maybe two, and they'd be the opposite. And it, we figured it out after a while that those were the ones they had just hold in Crystal or, <laughs> or Dubendorf or whatever, and they were hiding where they'd hold the boat and, you know, not showing it towards everybody floating by so they could patch it on the slide because they didn't want anybody to know. It's really funny. Um, but anyway, you know, we we loved looking at the dories and watching them and stuff. But, you know, I mean, look, any anything you row or motor or sweep, it doesn't matter. You're floating down the river and we all love what we do. And to me, that wasn't that was the most important part of it sharing our the magic with the clients and my parts really um but anyway long story short is i I could didn't have the money to buy a dory anyway so it didn't really matter or occur to me but um 
in 92, I believe it was, um, a friend of mine, Elson Miles, who I used to work for uh, with ASRA, um, he called me up out of the blue and said, hey, F.A., didn't you want a Dory? And I said, yeah, bud, but I, I can't afford a Dory. And he said, well, there's there's some guy, there's some pig farmer from Parks out here with a Dory on a trailer, and he, wants, he only wants 800 bucks for it. So I zoomed over there and offered him 400 and he spat and said, I'll burn it before I sell it for 400, you know? So uh, anyway, we, we agreed on 600. Woo. <laughs> and so, you know, I didn't know design. I didn't know anything. I just had an old boat and it turned out it was one of the two dories that um, the Jesse side of Azra had bought because they, you know, they had large snouts, they uh, road snouts, they had motor rigs, they had, paddle boats they had smaller rigs so they wanted to have it all so they thought oh well we'll just add a couple of dories um what they didn't factor in and i think that still happens to this day really is um if you're running rubber you can just run whatever rapid at whatever water level and there's just a different way to run it and you go through it um but what they didn't really realize what we didn't realize was uh, if you're running a dory, you were waiting for water levels to be going up or down, depending on the rapid. And so you had strategic camps where you would camp and strategic times and days of the week and stuff. And then you'd run it at the perfect time. Maybe you'd go for an extra hike at a couple for a couple hours and wait for the water to come up, say at Crystal, for example. Um, and then the rubber um, baggage boats carrying the extra duffel. Well, they just run whenever the dories ran. It didn't matter. So, you know, but a dory following rubber at any water level at any time of day, that didn't really work. And so those dories were smashed up quite a bit. <laughs> and I ended up with one of the two dories as, a, as you know, fate would have it that were Azra's, had been Azra's. So, um, and I didn't know about the dory naming protocols about, you know, naming their boats after places that beautiful wilderness places that man had destroyed over time. So um, I used to tell the Robert Service poem, the cremation of Sam McGee, and I just thought, oh, well, I'll name him Sam McGee. So I did. And, um, you know, over the years, I've repaired them, I busted them, I, the gunnels have rotted, the deck decks have rotted, this and that's happened. I've probably got, um, 25 grand into it, but I've also been rowing it for 30 years. And it's, uh, it, I just had it redecked. Um, old Sam was redecked by Andy Hutchinson. And uh, so it's got a different shape. It's more rocker. And um, so it's a little bit slower, um, but it's faster on the turns. It turns on a dime um, and it rolls a lot more. So um, I bought a pair of those uh, Cobra Orlocks. Wow. So that I could put the put the blades even as far out of the water as possible, and I'd actually sometimes hit the handles um, of my oars on the deck. The blades are so far out, and those Cobra oar locks allow for that movement, the extra movement. And um, I actually try to set a, um, a oar rights, those plastic oar rights, so you, you know to save your wrists. Um, at one point. Um, but you have to feather your oars on a dory. You can't use those things because um, quite often if you, you, you need that at one or two extra strokes when the oar, when the blade is completely buried underwater and you can't get it out for the, for the pullback stroke. So 
um, you got to feather them and row, learn how to row while the blade's completely underwater for several strokes. So yeah. I finally gave them up, but I also gave them up because I hated their logo, which, their slogan, which was um, novices delight, old timers relief. <laughs> I thought, I ain't buying those things. <laughs> I wouldn't want them either. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you said you said something about the protocol of naming a boat. Was there something was there something weird about naming your boat the Sam McGee? Not necessarily weird, but um, it just didn't fit in with, like I say, Martin Litton's and the Dory protocol. And now nowadays, that's sort of how a lot of people like. There's a lot of there's a lot of private people that you know have the money and the time, or they just they have the skill to build their own Dory, which still costs a lot, but nowhere near as much. Right. Um, and they, even they are using that same protocol. Well, they're, they'll, whereas they'll pick a place that's been destroyed by man, you know, like yeah. um, Music Temple or Marble Canyon, or, uh, you know, that almost was destroyed, or um, the Okeechobee Swamp, or, you know, for example, you know, one example of some, you know, of many. Um, so they, that's how they name their doors. Mm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that I loved your boat. Is it? Yeah. Is it? Where is it? Oh well, he's uh, old Sam is stored right now in a container, and um, having somebody build me a um, a storage shed um, on a friend's property in Doney Park in East Flag, because uh, out here there's no rivers big enough um, really to run a dory. So um, I'm leaving old, old Sam in uh, in Flag and. Hopefully when COVID settles down a bit and we can travel again, um, I've just applied for a private permit for next, uh, yeah, next year. Yeah. And um, hopefully I'll get to do the canyon once or twice more in old Sam. And then who knows, maybe, maybe um, they'll just have to put my body on the, on the deck and, and uh, light a fire and shove it out <laughs> like the <A> Vikings. <laughs> like a Viking, a very fitting. Yeah. I like to say that um, I'm a, I've got a Viking spirit trapped in a Jewish body. <laughs> <laughs> I think that suits you very well. That's great. That's great. <laughs> with, uh, with guiding for 44 years, you've seen a couple of, you've guided with a couple of generations of guides. Do you ever feel like you need to offer pieces of advice? Well, look, uh, I'm Jewish. So I, I'm offer, I always offer advice. I can't help it. That's part of the genetics, really. But, um, you know, it's funny because uh, I never felt like a mentor. I never, you know, looked in the mirror and go, and, you know, went, you're going to mentor somebody, so-and-so, whatever. Um, but having said, you know, and you got to be careful because uh, I've had, I've given advice to people really as gently and supportively as I could have, I mean, I very consciously was doing that, you know, as I was giving a piece of advice and you get the old stink eye, you know, like I'm a river guide in the Grand Canyon or I'm a river guide in general and I'm on the middle fork, you know, who are you to give me advice? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it would, might've been easier maybe if I had, you know, if I were six feet tall and uh, had blonde hair and big, huge muscles, but um, I don't know, but, you know, who knows, but, you know, in, in the end, um, I tried to just lead by example, and um, if I had something I thought was super critical, like, you know, it was a safety issue, um, then I try to give advice as gently as I could, and sometimes it was accepted, and sometimes it wasn't, 
and or, you know, I've made a lot of friends over the years that were, you know, younger guides. Um, and they've now come up in the ranks. I mean, they're, they've surpassed me by far by now. But, um, you know, like I'd, I'd, I'd kind of look at them and go, uh, flip flops and Horn Creek at low water, really, you know? And, uh, you know, they'd get, I'd get the stink eye, for example, you know? And, uh, and then of course they'd go for a bad swim in lava and lose their flops and have to walk barefoot over the hot rocks. And then they figured it out. But, you know, you, it's a, it's a hard thing, you know, you can't, in my opinion, anyway, you can't really set out to be a mentor. You just do the best you can and share what you can. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've been lucky enough to have a number of people come to me over the years and say, you know, you started my river guiding career. I, uh, you were my inspiration, you, you know, Renaissance man, whatever. And, you know, I, we love you. And thank you so much for you know, helping me out. And I, and I keep thinking, really, I did that. Wow. That's, that's really cool. I never knew, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing what you do. Yeah. I, I, I feel that way about you, but that, oh, well, that's that, well, it's a leading by example thing. That's, that's just it. And I think that's, you know, it's probably the, the, the best thing any of us can do is try to try to do our best. Yeah, really. And you know, the river makes it easy because the river is the teacher. Uh, really, and, um, you know, the best thing we can do, in my opinion, is to is to kind of uh, facilitate that as much as possible and then just get out of the way and let the river do the teaching one way or another. Whatever always teaches you stuff. What um, do you are you familiar with any of the any of the political stuff that's going on with the minimum wage laws in the U.S. and the the idea of people wanting to start a union. Have you, are you privy to any of that conversation? Well, yeah, you know, I watch it. Um, and I've, you know, I've got a nonprofit going on here that um, Friends of the Mitta Mitta River. Um, mm. And so I'm part of the community here now, um, thousands and thousands of paddlers, believe it or not, in the driest inhabited continent on earth. Um, so yeah, I do watch that. And those, look, those same discussions are happening here. And those same discussions were happening half a century ago, really. Um, you know, I've always said, and it's not like I'm saying that outfitters per se are evil. They're great people. I was an outfitter myself. I have a lot of, some of my best friends are outfitters, you know, but um, yeah. it's just, it's, it's, it's the system really. And it's super easy, whether you know you're doing it or not, to exploit the fact that we are doing this because we love it. We're, you know, we do it for free. You know, <laughs> a lot of times, you know, we just need to eat and have a roof over our heads. In the beginning, anyway, when you're in your twenties and things change, obviously, when as you get older. But I mean, that it's the same darn conversation we've been having forever. And I mean, I remember, um, you know, when uh, the Arta crew said, "We'll, you know, we're going to unionize and we'll strike." Uh, to Lou Elliott at Arda. And Lou said, go ahead and strike. I'll fire all of you. I'll go to the nearest high school in Angels Camp, California. And I'll have a bunch of teenagers that'll do work for free for at least a season and they'll be just as good as you. And that's exactly what happened. And he was right, except for the fact that they weren't as good as us. But I mean, right. <laughs> you know, nothing's, nothing's changed in that realm, really, because it's an easily exploitable passion that we have as a as a career. Um, 
you know, so we gotta we gotta figure that out. But here, um, it's because we don't get tipped. You know, in Australia, it's a it's kind of a little bit different conversation. But uh, and it's not guiding as much in Australia as it is outdoor education. So you're working for a company that takes um, school groups out on journeys on the river. Um, that's mostly what happens. It's not so much commercial guiding unless you go overseas and go to the Zam, Zambezi or something like that. Right. Huh. Huh. So we talk a lot um, amongst ourselves at the Red Side Foundation as guides being, their guides being oftentimes the, like the first line of the introduction to falling in love with the natural world, folks who who they've gone outside a little bit, but you go on a longer trip with a guide and a guide's able to interpret the natural and cultural history of the place. Do you, um, do you, do you, do you have anything you want to say about that? <laughs> well, no, that's true. I mean, look, I, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like I did anything. It was just where the, the, the door that opened for me when I first started, it was through, et cetera, environmental traveling, traveling companions. And, we were taking disabled folks down the river. And I, I used to think of it as the great equalizer, you know, like they didn't need to be able to walk, <laughs> you know, They'd sit in a boat and hold on. And if they couldn't hold on, like they were maybe a um, high functioning quad or they had MS or CP and they weren't real stable, we'd have um, somebody that would hold on to them, you know, for example. And so, you know, if they were blind, they, we actually had paddle boats of, you know, blind people. Um, you know, where we could just guide, have them guide the boat down and there'd be the guy in the back calling commands, for example. So it, to me, it was the great equalizer. And it, it was sort of, in essence, what you're talking about. Um, like my friend, Joe Biner, who has cerebral palsy, and he was a river guide. I mean, he rode the Grand Canyon himself a dozen times. He can't even feed himself or walk, but he'd crawl onto his boat and he'd grab the oars and they'd stabilize him a bit. And he read water better than any human being I've ever met. And uh, he'd row his boat down the Grand Canyon, all those rapids. He wouldn't walk over yeah. to scout. You'd scout for him and you'd tell him, give him the beta. And then uh, he'd row like a champ through it. So, and he used to say, everybody's disabled. Mine's just more obvious, you know? And I thought, yeah. <laughs> wow, you know, that yeah. truer words were never spoken really. But, you know, if you take that to the next level, what, you know, kind of what you're talking about, I mean, we're, that's, I mean, think of the essence of the word guides. We're right. guiding people, you know? And, you know, you have guides, you have spiritual guides, you know, you have guides who are sort of your mentors at work and whatever job you have, really. Uh, and that's just what we do. And so, you know, we gotta learn how to interpret um, what people are seeing and give them, you know, like, the more they know about it, it's it's kind of like being an intimate lover, if you ask me. You know, the more you know about each other, the more you, the deeper you can go, so to speak. And so it's up to us to learn, all, you know, the geology or the flora and fauna or, you know, whatever, you know, is your thing, birds, uh, stars, what have you. Um, because when you share that with the folks, it, it, it enriches their experience, really. And so it's sort of value adds. And um, so, yeah, I mean, and people, you know, used to come to me, you know, when I was young, my first flip was in Rainy Falls mm. on a single boat trip with, a, a, you know, some clients, a guy and his sons. 
And uh, I knew better than to run Rainy Falls at low water. That was about as dumb as it gets. But, you know, A, I had a lot of testosterone in those days. But B, um, I let him talk me into it. You know, I want you to take my son over Rainy Falls, you know, become a man sort of thing. And, you know, in those days, I was dumb enough to go for it and, and took him down. And we flipped. I mean, a single boat trip. And we flipped and lost uh, every all the oars, broke the frame, lost half the food, took quite a while to get undiscombobulated and find the oars downstream and swim back up. So, oh God, it was epic. But I learned a lesson, long story short. And, um, you know, as time went on and I got better at it um, and I got more mature, so people would listen to me maybe a little bit more too. You know, clients would say, oh, I can hike this or, oh, I can, you know, paddle this, you know, or, uh, you know, it'll be fine. I can, you know, I don't care if it's 120 degrees out, we can hike to Tapeats, you know, and I'd have to say, slow down, hang on, <laughs> or there'd be a big rainstorm upstream in Havasu and people go, no, it'll be fine. And I'd have to learn how to say, no, actually, you're paying me to be the guide. I'm a guide because I know what can happen. I know, you know, all the bad things and all the good things and how to make sure that everybody's safe. And that's so we're going to do what I I'm sorry, you know, but this is what how we're going to have to play this one. So it takes a while to get to that spot. I think it does. That's uh, learning, learning to say no and learning to to couch how you say things is comes with experience, right? Yeah, well, for sure. And, you know, like you risk. I mean, there would be managers who would have spanked me or fired me or for that. Fortunately, I had some good managers over the years. And, you know, like I might have been called into the office because I got a bad letter because I didn't let somebody take photos at Lava Falls when prospect was flashing huge and the rapid was changing before our eyes. But, you know, they were, you know, they'd hear the other side of the story and they'd go, oh, okay, you know, that's good. But you got to have the management with the courage and the wisdom and and you've got to have yourself the courage to be able to go, no, you know, I'd rather get a bad letter and or get fired than risk somebody dying. I mean, really, it's a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you still stay really close with all your guide friends in all over the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I still talk with Steve Kenny. We Skype every once in a while and Dave Edwards when I can and um, Sharon Hester. I mean, I can't, I can't even Molly Heyman. I mean, I, the list goes on and on and on and on. And, you know, I've got a lot of young friends, guides, colleagues here in Australia. And, uh, you know, it took them a while. Like when I went kayaking just this last, uh, spring, which is, was the fall for you guys. Um, and I was kind of putting on, trying to put on my tight spray skirt and somebody came up from behind and, Help me finish it off. And, you know, another kayaker, this young, um, cocky sort of guy, you know, he goes, oh, this is going to be interesting. You know, this old guy in a kayak, oh, we're going to have to save him. But and then he was like, later on, he came up to me and said, oh, God, I didn't realize you were great. Oh, I'm sorry, you know. So, you know, there's, um, you know, I'm glad, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that I, I can relate to and have really young friends that are getting into the guiding scene now or just you know sort of in the middle of their career and I've got guides who are like me you know they're looking at the end or they've experienced it like me I mean it was like I said the hardest thing I've ever done in my life so whether people actually articulate that or not it ain't easy trust me 
leaving. I mean, we did, we were one of the few careers on earth where we dreaded retirement. Right, right. Pretty wild. <laughs> it, that's, a, that's a very profound thing to say. Very profound thing mm-hmm. to say. Do you, do you feel like because of all the shared experience and the joy that there is a deeper commitment to the community of guides between each other than maybe you might find in another profession? Yeah, well, you know, look, maybe that that provides us the segue we needed. But, um, you know, uh, it's funny because we don't have any kids because I had testicular cancer when I was in my 20s. And my wife, you know, back in the old days, um, you know, anything that was happening down in the groin region for a female, oh, well, take her ovaries out. So my wife had a hysterectomy early on. Um, So, uh, you know, we don't have kids. And... um, we don't really have a lot of really close family either. So, I mean, we have a lot of family, but not, they, they've got their, they have their own means. They don't need us and our money. And we got really lucky with our investments. Um, you know, it's partly foresight and investments and partly just blind ass luck really. But you know, long story short is we ended up with, you know, no mortgage and, you know, some money in the bank and we were wondering what the heck to do with it, you know? And, I, I shoot, I, I bet I spent a year trying to figure it out. And then all of a sudden I thought, well, wait a minute, we can, we can just give our uh, inheritance to the whale foundation and Redside and the Grand Canyon river guys, our community, you know, it's not like the RSPCA or anything. It's the people we love and know and people that are living the same life. So it took us another year to get that all worked out because you know it's just it's not easy doing that but yeah we just finished doing that and so um assuming you know we don't spend our inheritance which i don't think we'll be able to really uh um yeah we've given a what did you guys call it a a legacy giving program or yeah um um yeah it's basically it's it's a legacy gift uh, you know a legacy inheritance yeah, um, we bequeathed everything to those three organizations. And so, you know, look, when we go to the big sleep, it won't much matter one way or another. But, you know, if I have if I'm lucky enough to have 10 seconds before I actually close my eyes forever, I'll think, you know, good. I'm glad somebody some other guides are going to be able to get a little bit of help, you know, with stuff like you're talking about, a scholarship or maybe, you know, uh, maybe they need some help with, um, you know, um, you know, too much drink or smoke, smoking cigarettes or whatever, or maybe they're, they've been, had their back was injured and, or maybe they're just evolving into a whole nother career and can't cope. I mean, who knows, but this, it'll be good to know that um, we've helped. It's amazing. It's considering that you're, you know, from the first, first, first or second generation of guides. And here you are looking out for the future of guides is just yeah, well, it's so beautiful yeah. do the best we can i guess but it, it feels much better than just you know like i say letting the government figure out who to take it give it to <laughs> after the first time we talked about that a few other folks have stepped forward saying that they want to do that too and it is it's it's just it it just it makes my heart burst especially some of those folks knowing that they're still really close with some some older guides who are who, who didn't get a chance to get help and they, they're not oh. and it is just to know that maybe there's 
maybe there's less of that in the future because of people like you just is, it's beautiful. Oh, that's sweet. That's really great to know. Well, you know, like broadcast it. Yeah, maybe the word that was, the, word, the phrase I was looking for was legacy bequest, but it doesn't oh, yeah. matter what you call it. Um, right. You know, really, if you, I bet you, if you put the word out, um, that that's, that there's going to be more and more folks that are going to go, wow, great idea. Never thought of that. Bang, you know, pull the trigger. That's, uh, I did, it's such a, it's such a beautiful community, the whole guiding community. I, I couldn't be more thankful to be part of it. And, yeah, indeed. Yeah. It's like a family, huh? Like a family. You know, there's a, there's a big movement right now in companies to not say that we're a family at this company, that it's, that it's, uh, it's putting too much pressure on someone to be at work all the time. And it's kind of exactly the opposite in guiding, isn't it? <laughs> that with oh, all the yeah. No. Sleeping. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. That's interesting. No, I mean, it's all about family as far as, you know, we're concerned and, you know, look, uh, you know, people can say the words without really feeling it too, you know, like you're my part. And then when the chips are down, you know, where are they? But most, I think people really get it. And it really means is meaningful and it's how they live their lives. And wow. You know, I mean, I remember leaving Chicago and I mean, I, I left my Jewish tribe behind and I was look, seeking a tribe to belong to. And, um, you know, mountaineering is, you know, I loved and did until I couldn't do it anymore because they cut my belly so many times I could didn't have that pull-up strength but um you know it was more an individualistic sport like when you're on a mountain even if you're roped up with somebody you know you're either moving your legs or your arms or you're not you know um and then when I found boating and the current camaraderie that you know is is just part and parcel with it wow that just changed my world and uh found my tribe really for the rest of my life a little more dynamic with the with the with the other guides and the the guests and the and the river and the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, really, I've got friends who are also were clients, and and you know they ended up being really close friends too over the years. Took them down rivers all over the world, and now we're just just as close as my colleagues. It's really kind of cool. Super cool. I have that as well, and it's I'm always so thankful for it. And oftentimes there were people that the other guys were like, oh, I don't know about that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out in the long run, they're total keepers. <laughs> yeah, really? Well, how many people said that about me over the years? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, I keep you. <laughs> well, it's, been, it's been great to catch up. I realize we've been talking for a while. Is there anything else that you wanna talk about? Yeah, um, not really. Look, uh, you know, we live in kind of a macho sport. It is what it is, you know, and uh, it's really easy to let your ego um, take control and kind of lose it a little bit. And, um, you know, so, and I, God knows I was there myself. I was a cocky little son of a bitch when I was young. And, um, you know, thank, thank God I, I got spanked and didn't die from the spankings and, um, you know, made it through that. And I'm grateful for that. But, um, you know, when everybody's praising you and, you know, wow, what a great run, man, you know, uh, it's, it's really hard 
not to get a bit of an ego. And, and so it's all about the management, in my opinion. And, you know, just watch yourself and, and manage it well and be compassionate and have empathy and love your brother and sister um, for sure. And, you know, the other part of what we do because of how big we are on the stage all the time is it's really hard to admit, um, you know, when you got a problem. And that's what you and you guys at Redside and the Whale Foundation is there for, really. And they're just learning that really in the armed forces, you know, like how to say, you know, I got PTSD or whatever and not be drummed out right immediately when the people hear that. Good on you for, for doing what you're doing. You know, Evie, we, we, we had our, our hundredth guide go into counseling since the beginning of the Redside Foundation uh, at the beginning of 2021. And in 2021, we had 50 guides going to counseling. I think it's so cool because it means that it means that it's becoming more normalized for guides to look out for each other and to notice, Hey, you know what? Maybe you should call. It's not, it's not so bad. Yeah. I called and it's, yeah, I, exactly. I can see the difference happening in Idaho. And we just, so we just did a fundraiser in Wyoming this weekend, this past weekend to launch a Wyoming chapter. So Saturday night mm-hmm. was our fundraiser. Two days later, we had a guide from Wyoming call today. And that's, wow. I think that's just pretty incredible. That's super. Well, congratulations. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, um, it's amazing that the, the profession and our community has evolved to this point. And who knows what the next step is, but, you know, looking forward to seeing it. I am too. I am too. Thanks for being part of it. Thanks, Shannon, for doing this uh, very much. It was great to hear your voice again. It's great to hear yours too. Let's stay in touch more, please. <laughs> yeah, we'll do. We'll yeah. do from the other side of the planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, when all this COVID's a little bit easier and you come back to the states, well, maybe we'll see you down on the canyon. Yeah, or I'd love to go up and do the Middle Fork. I mean, I love that river as much as anything. Yeah, well, let's try. Let's try to get you out on the Middle Fork. I think that would be really fun. <laughs> Hafei, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed hearing you speak, and there's some large nuggets in there of wisdom. So, um, thank you. Yeah, thanks both to both of you guys for doing it. It's really it was really fun. I think thank I you. Thanks, Craig. Shannon, thank you as well. That's our show. Thanks, Hafei Aronson and Shannon Walton. Again, Shannon is the director of the Redside Foundation. You can learn more about the Redside Foundation at redsidefoundation.org. And if you're an Idaho, Montana, or Wyoming guide, you can also get support by calling the Mental Health Hotline at 208-740-1192. Thanks, Redside Foundation. Thanks so much for listening. Please consider subscribing to the show on whatever platform you're listening from. Our episodes are at this point still funded only through listeners like you. If you'd like to help me produce more episodes, you can find me on Venmo, at Gregory Cairns. If you have a river story you'd like to share with me, I'd like to hear it. Please let me know. Today's show was produced and written by me, Greg Cairns, and Cairns Film in Bozeman, Montana. Our editor is Alara Jones. Intro music by Larry Keel, BMI Keelfish Music. The composer of Corn Liquor is David Via. Cover art by Drew Madden. Remember to watch your downstream or respect the river gods and take care of each other. We're all just between swims.
Thank you.